written and recorded in Brighton, England, and edited and produced in Portland, Oregon. Sweat Drenched Press and PGTTCM.com present. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's Laura here with... Me, Zach. And this is the latest episode of Articulate Warbling, and we are going to review a number of films, starting with three films that we watched in the cinema, uh, and then a few films that we have watched on Now TV and Netflix. I think before we go into Godzilla vs. Kong, we need to cover bases of the films that we saw before. So Godzilla, 2014 sets up the monster universe. It does. There's a reptilian creature called Gorilla. 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 And it it is reawakened because there's a new kaiju monster out there and it wants to take his planet. And basically this is uh, Gareth um, Edwards' uh, big Hollywood entry into well it's basically his first big Hollywood film before that he did a small film it's got Aaron Taylor Johnson Elizabeth Olsen Brian Cranston and it's basically like all Godzilla films total destruction but I feel this one is a little different because it's so fucking real it, you are on the ground you can feel the intensity the density the weight like, a lot of movies with CGI, like the later half films, you don't feel any stakes, you don't feel the immensity of it. Whereas the first Godzilla, you feel it. You're there on the ground with people. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I really like Godzilla 1. I think I gave that five stars. I think I did too, didn't I? Yes, you really enjoyed well, it. I did really enjoy it, which was not what I was expecting at all. I didn't think I was going to enjoy it. I don't... Although I do quite like a bombastic action film, I wasn't sure that it was going to be my thing. Every time I told people that we were going to go and see Godzilla vs. Kong, they groaned. So I thought, you know, watching the kind of films leading up to that, I'd feel the same. And I didn't. No, uh, I think it didn't hurt that Aaron Taylor Johnson's in it. No, certainly Uh, didn't hurt. The element of family always hits home, hits hard. I really like Brian Cranston in this. It has got a story. I mean, it's a very unique approach to Godzilla in the sense that you're treating it uber seriously instead of the 1997 or 8 version, which was the Roland Emmerich bombastic, ridiculous OTT action sci-fi film, which the series does go into in the later half. They kind of throw the rule book that they established with the first Godzilla and kind of with Kong. Mm-hmm. So this is the first entry, and I think there was a it was a really clever idea to follow this up with Kong, yeah, Skull Island. Because yeah. going from that to then, imagine if you went straight to Godzilla, King of Monsters. I don't think people would have turned out because that film is atrocious, but not as bad as I ultimately came away feeling. But anyway, five stars for the first Godzilla. Uh, it's good. It's really good. Uh. It's just different, the approach. It's gritty, it's realistic, it's atmospheric, and also it's that survival element. Also, uh, run, run, Russian against time type appeal as well. Mm-hmm. Also, Godzilla is established beautifully. He is not a danger to us. 
Overall, he is, but he actually isn't. He's more of a comrade. He's more of our protector. And I like that whole dichotomy of the government and people who are meant to be the, uh, you know, the higher echelons of control in the world are like, no, we need to demolish him. We need to take, you know, kill two birds with one stone mm. with this other uh, creature that's come to the fore. And uh, the scientist by Ken Watanabe, who is played by Ken Watanabe, is like, let them fight. This is almost like natural selection at play. Yeah. And that aspect of Godzilla, we've never seen played on the big screen. I'm not for me personally. So that's what really, uh, what's the strengthening of the foundation for the beginning of this series going forward. And they do also play with that in Godzilla, King of Monsters. But you agree, five stars? Absolutely. Kong, Skull Island. Visually, cinematically, completely different. Mm. It is over the top. Mm -hmm. It is bombastic. But it is so sincerely made, it's just brilliant. Mm. And it also feels like it is part of the same world because of the way it's shot. You can feel the heft. You can feel the density. When those people are in the sky around this ginormous ape, mm-hmm. you feel it. Yeah. You feel stakes. Mm-hmm. You feel consequences with the skull crawlers. Who's that? It's what I called them. It sounds stupid now I said it out loud. Mm-hmm. It's got comedy. Mm-hmm. It's got a little bit of romance. Also, it's got a ginormous ape who just, you know... Oh, he's so lovable. He's, just, he's lovely. He's just chilling out and he's a protector himself yeah. of his land. Exactly. And we're coming in dropping bombs. And I love it that in these movies, we hate the humans. We're almost willing for the humans to die because yeah. we're disgusting with ourselves. Mm. And what I love about the John C. Riley character is he's basically us, the audience. You don't come into Kong's ground and start dropping bombs. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, also John C. Riley is just fucking hilarious. I really love him. He's just... he's he. Even if he's doing a serious role, he always offers something different. He's one of those rare, rare birds that, you know, comes along and you admire it for its funny chirp and chirrup. But then you can almost appreciate it for its elegance. Not saying that John C. Riley is elegant, but the way he can shift his tonalities like really quickly. He can be comedic, but he can also be quite serious. Mm. Mm. Like that pit where he's like, <laughs> you guys should have come here. We're all gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can see the sincerity, the sincerity in the performance as well, where yeah. he's been there so long, where it starts. He's part of the island now, isn't he? He is part of the island and its culture. And we see in the beginning, he crash lands in World War where he was fighting a kamikaze pilot. Mm-hmm. And then to turn, it turns out that him and this kamikaze pilot formed a union, mm. a friendship, and basically were together and were brothers in the end. I just like that. I like that boots on the ground type of uh, storytelling. Mm-hmm. Taking those elements and, you know, saying there's a unification about it all. And it foreshadows the unification of what is inevitable between Kong and Godzilla. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'll get into the problems of those films after, but Kong Skull Island is gorgeous. I love it. I utterly adore it. it the thing Jordan Vogt Roberts does is he steals from other films but he does something so unique with each of these uh, iconoclastic, iconic looks and styles and, you know, anglings and shots. It's it's more homage than evolved homage. Homage. It's like a French cheers. Homage. Or some people say homage. Doesn't sound right, does it? I'm pretty sure homage is actually a French word. Homage. It is. And, uh... He takes it and then he makes it uniquely singular to that film's visual DNA. Uh... 
uh, for me, again, it's another five-star film. It's a masterpiece. I, I love agree. it. You changed your opinion. You came out like four stars. No, I think it is. It is very good. It's got it's really. Boston. I think it's really difficult when you're watching a film, because we, again, we've watched films in quite close succession. These ones we did as well, because we were fighting, because we didn't even know the Blu-ray was going to turn up, did we? No. We were desperate to see them before we'd gone to before we went to see Godzilla vs Kong at the cinema, and there was only like a few hours left, wasn't there? We yeah. were really, really up against time to try and get it in. Yeah. Um. So I think sitting there having watched these films back to back, it's a bit difficult to kind of come out of one world and although it is a very you know it is basically the same world, but to come out of one world and into another and then back into another one and kind of adding things up and and trying to think about how I felt about it and whether I liked it or not. And again, um, if you... Well, you will have hopefully just listened to um, our Saw Spectacular. Again, having watched Godzilla vs Kong, it puts the previous into perspective. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I would agree with you. Kong Skull Island gets five stars. And this is the thing I want to uh, go out on in these last... Because these are the strongest in the series, these two. Yeah. I have a bone to pick with filmmakers who decide to always bring in a human element, and I know why they do it. Those first two movies, it's warranted and it's earned, yeah. and you get those beats, yeah. like you're satisfied. The next two movies, a lot of the time you feel, do we need that human element? King of Monsters, in retrospect, after Godzilla vs. Kong, it works better. Mm-hmm. So, now, going into Godzilla... Uh, King of Monsters, or King of the Monsters. I think it should have been called King of Monsters. I don't know why they had to put a the there. Why don't you take the, that the from there and put it on top of the bodyguards, wives, wives, <laughs> bodyguards, hitman, awful title. Bodyguards. Also, Incredibles 2. Hitman's wife. It should have been The Incredibles 2. Why'd you do that? Why'd you do this, Hollywood? Are you that lazy to pronounce one more word? The. The. You either want it or you don't. You either it's want it or you don't. But you need it. On it. When 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 you hear somebody ordering a ticket at a cinema, they don't say the Incredibles. Yeah, they do. And I've done this before. I can't remember what it was, but it was some time ago. Me and Mum went to the cinema, and we were going to see the something. Uh, it might have been the Impossible, actually. And people went, "Oh, we want to see Impossible." And the, the staff just go, yeah, here's your tickets for it to yeah. see Impossible. So I think the problem is, is the fact that because unless it is real, I think the Impossible is the Impossible, to be fair. But I think unless you know that yeah. people are going to say the the, yeah. they take it off. Uh, the only time that someone's fucked up so largely was when, when me and my granddad went to see Eagle Eye, the uh, surveillance movie with Shia LaBeouf. And at the same time, there was an animated movie called Eagle. And Granddad said it so quick, he was like, Eagle Eye. And she went, okay, tickets for Eagle. And we didn't even compute because she said it so quickly. Yeah. So we went in and we were like, no, we don't want to see Eagle. And we come out and we were like, Eagle Eye. She was like, oh, I thought you said Eagle. He went, no, Eagle Eye. She went, no, but you can understand why I thought you said. He went, no, I said Eagle Eye. And I was even standing at the age 13 going, no, I don't think you did pronounce it that slow, Granddad. But we ended up getting a refund on our tickets and getting to see uh, Eagle Eye. But that is that thing. I, but there are some picnicity arsos. I turned up and I was like, Iron Man, please. And he was like, Iron Man, what? I'm like, the, only one, the only one that's showing right and now. And he's like, Iron Man 2. And I'm like, 
fuck are you? Then again, I'm the really pernickety person that will go in if there was a the and be like, I want to see the hitman's wife's bodyguard, please. And they'll turn around and go, don't you mean hitman's wife's bodyguard? No, please. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, good point. So we're going into Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Yeah. I saw this in cinemas. It wasn't the largest of screens. It was kind of like petering out at the end and they're like, oh, no one's turning up. Mm -hmm. Because we do get bums and seats with big bombastic films in the UK, but once that hype peters out, they like to shove it in a small screen. Yeah. And what ruined the performance for me was these, these three guys turned up and I think they just literally didn't know what they were in for. They just sat there... And it was like they couldn't shut off their minds. Mm. So everything that happened, they were giggling, laughing. And it wasn't like that kid in Godzilla vs. Kong because he was so excited about it. These guys were deliberately being obnoxious and loud as if to say, we're better than this movie. This is what we think of this film. And it's like, well, well don't come and fucking see it then, guys. Mm. And then as I left, I just sneered at them like, you've ruined a cinematic experience for me yeah. personally because you reacted so obnoxiously, so arrogantly... Oh, God! <laughs> Get really! And you know when someone's, like, waving their hand about looking around and it's mm. like, you've got two other mates, yeah? You don't need any more attention, sunshine. But he's like, oh, come, come on! And, like, he leaned over at one point and was looking at me like, come on! And I was like, yeah, come the fuck on. I'm going to drag you out of that emergency exit and kick the living shit out of you in a minute. So it ruined it. So approaching it on Blu-ray, I turned to Laura and I did say, I went, this is the shittest one. As the film goes on, I was like, I'm actually enjoying this. It's lost something, and I kind of know what it is now after some time. Because like you said, straight after, it's hard to quite elocute, kind of. It's like a morass. It's just a whole submergence of... That's why I really struggle when you're like, what do you think of that? And I'm like, the I'm critics sorry, haven't even finished. I'm sorry, it's instantaneous. It's just habit, second nature to me. I mean, if you weren't now, I'd be tapping on a stranger's leg going, what did you think? And they'd be like, get off me. <laughs> so, going in, the film is messy. Yeah. It's very messy. The human elements are much stronger in this and the lack of decently paid off human elements in Godzilla vs Kong makes me appreciate this a little bit more. Mm -hmm. The greatest issue I have is the advancement of technology. There's no build up to that. Mm. There's no there's no lead up or or uh it comes from a real grounded place. Mm. Though it's a fantastical ideal and notion. It's re realistic in the first film. Godzilla vs Kong, it's almost a period film because it's based in the 70s, 60s. And those fantastical elements but there's still a foot, foot, boots on the ground reality to it, mm. no matter how bombastic it gets. This film, within five years, we've gone from a realistic, recognisable 2014 to what you would expect from 2658 or something. <laughs> the film, in five years, between Godzilla in their linear time, mm. technology would not advance that quickly. Mm. And then the whole... Mucky, mucky areas where they're like, well, Monarch has always been on the top of the chain. Have they? Have they really? I don't think they have. Because if they were that prepared, wouldn't they have that technology at hand when Godzilla kicked off? Mm. They started way back in the 70s or late 70s. Wouldn't you think that advancement would have been there and inherent? So 
that push of technology and into the more science fiction realms, I know what they wanted to do. They wanted what Michael Doherty and Zach Shields, the writer, and Michael Doherty, the director, wanted to do was go, you know what, balls to the wall, this is a monster science fiction action film. Fair dues. But there is no... There's hardly any continuity with the realism that's been well established. Also, everyone is so blasé about the destruction. There is no approach where you feel there's any stakes because you know in the next film they're going to go five years later, everything's rebuilt. You don't get a sense of that gravitas or that scale because you know everything's going to be cleared up so heavily and nothing is really narratively tidied up. It's not realistic in a sense of... And I can't withhold my dis, 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 I can't suspend my disbelief because the first two films are narratively, filmically, generally realistic mm. in as much as it can be. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you have vast spaceships, time jumping spaceships, ships that can go into the centre of the earth, ships that can battle oxygen generators. Now, within the five years that has elapsed, at least we have human elements. We have this young girl played by Millie Bobby the Brown, and it's an estranged father who's, you know, in and there's there's lead up and consequence of what's happened before. I appreciate that. Because that carries over to these characters' lives and their decisions. Mm. But the stakes in a whole global national sense, international sense, it's lacking because you know that within the next film they're gonna go, Hey, we just improved our technology and made our houses double quick, dub, dub, double time. You know what I mean? Mm. Do you see where I'm coming from, yeah. that issue? Did you feel that at all? Um, I can see absolutely where you're coming from. I don't think I looked that far into it, to be honest, okay. to be that bothered. I don't know. There's an element of films like this, you just kind of got to... you just got to let it be what it's Well, I did, be. eventually. But then they, 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 they do... They, they, they suffer the same issue. The same issues inherent are even more personified with the follow-up, but they don't even have the audacity to bring in actual character developments and human stories. If you want humans and stories, relatable arcs within there, you go with it and you yeah. develop it. Yeah. I feel there should have been a Kong film between Godzilla, King of Monsters, King of the Monsters, and Godzilla versus Kong. There needed to be a space where we saw... Kong being trapped, mm. seeing a potential long history bond of us nurturing him, actually protecting him yeah. on his home ground. Everything is so rushed in the next film. Mm. But within King of the Monsters, it's bombastic, it's visual. But the scale is so large, it's almost spastic, it's almost elastic. Everything is so smooth running. You don't see the weight. You don't feel like it's real. It just looks like a CGI sequence. Mm. And that's what I didn't like about these films. A little bit of improvement in Adam Wingard's Godzilla vs. Kong. Little improvement. But with Kong 2, it's... It shines bright with the relationship and the evolution and the notion that Godzilla is inherently a good guy and he is our god mm. for good reason. Mm. I like that interrelationship between Ken Watanabe's character who ends up sacrificing himself to supercharge Godzilla when he goes underground into yeah. uh, Atlantis. I like those things because you're taking narrative elements and you're evolving them that have payoff. Still good that we didn't see Aquaman in there. <laughs> thing that I always will have an issue with this film is so blasé and la-di-da about the destruction that you really don't give a fuck. It's just bombast for the sake of it. And it's really 
pretty much a CGI sequence rather than a sequence where characters you care for are pitted within it. Mm. I never really felt that Millie Bobby Brown was in danger. You'll know this is going to culminate in something else. And with the press release hot, hot on the tail of this film's release with Godzilla vs. Kong was being made, you knew that this film was purely ushering in the scope and that that splendour to have that movie. But they needed a breakup. I think the issues with Godzilla vs. Kong specifically should have been nurtured and evolved naturally with another Kong film, but yeah. they want to get those monsters out. They want to sell those toys. They want yeah. that big bash film to come out. But if you really want that human element, you've got to give a little bit more than, hey, you recognise these characters? They're basically cameoing. <laughs> yeah. So Godzilla, King of the Monsters, worked on a lot of levels, but they introduced a lot, Michael Doherty and Zach Shields, like with that uh, stinger thing, where that man has uh, Godzilla's uh, head one of the Hydra's heads, and they're oh, yeah. doing a test on it, and his part of being this uh, eco-terrorist. Mm. They have the head in the follow-up film, but where is he? Yeah, Where's yeah, he disappeared yeah, yeah, to? Yeah. So you introduce these things as stingers and tasters, and then there's no payoff mm. in the next film. So I like the scope. I like some of the character elements. I don't like that it just... When you're watching it, you can just tell it's a big CGI slop. And I'm all for sequences like that and bombast, but because you've basically ground it in a realistic uh, plateau and plane already, you kind of come away like, mm. oh, it's it's that, but it's not what you did before. And I know they want to throw balls to the wall. They're like, fuck it, let's just go for it. But there's got to be some... I feel like somebody who just hasn't watched the previous films mm. and they've yeah. just made this one and they've gone, it's all right, I know the concept. Yeah, yeah. And then they've written it and they've gone, there you go, look, yeah. see, great film. Yeah. Yeah. And we're like... Yeah. Um... So Michael Doherty was literally, and I watched the special features, he redesigned Godzilla for no fucking reason just because he wanted it to be bigger and his thing. Mm. So it's like, no, nah, okay, Gareth did his, but I'm going to do mine. And it's like, you've got to be a little bit respectful to the films that have come before. Yeah. Looking at you, J.J. Abrams. Um, <laughs> the film is visually engaging sometimes it just looks like a mess editorially character wise too many characters at some point like i don't know why uh ice cube's son is in it as a, a as a unnamed character <laughs> like hey look that's ice cube's son who shoots a gun here and then what for what reason focus on the characters you've got already yeah. like they had the guy from get out which you haven't seen who's like the comedic person who keeps saying shit like yeah godzilla is juiced oh my god you won the glasses mm. we don't need characters like that we mm. really don't you it's all right with the father the estranged wife a strange father strange husband daughter that whole dynamic is interesting that this woman who inherently was so hurt by the trauma to, the trauma of losing her son during the initial godzilla versus those other uh, creatures attacks she wants to kind of equal the world out in a very misguided way by Vera Famiga, very beautiful, good actress. But they lose focus and scope. And these writers then did an outline for Godzilla versus Kong themselves, but they don't even pay off that of which they do introduce. So it does. It feels like a two, three flying blase thing, like you said. Like, I'm just doing what I want to do with no consequence. But you do. You have to pay tribute and respect to the DNA and the continuity and the, the tenor 
the tenure of what is come before. So it does, though it feels like it's part of the same world, creature design-wise, it does feel like a more extrapolated, ridiculous side of things. Now, if you want to go full balls to the walls, you just eradicate human elements completely because it just, it's just, it's just mess and mired in mess. Whereas this one, up in ret retrospect, they do much more with characters than, you know, Godzilla versus Kong. So for me, I have to give Godzilla, King of the Monsters, two stars still. I think I gave it three. You gave it three originally. I will stick with that. I still got to give it two because I don't like its blasé attitude. And also that CGI and the backdrops and the green screen and the rotoscope shit is awful. It's painful. You have so much budget. What the fuck are you wasting it on? Ice Cube's son. Instead of wasting Ice Cube's Ice Cube and his iced coffee. Ice Cube's like, hey, I want my Ice Cube to look like my daddy's face and my iced coffee. Yeah, bitch. You know, it's like it. the coffee budget could have been spent on the backdrop budget. It, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. It's not a good follow-up. And it's nothing compared to Kong and... 2014's Godzilla. So now let's get into Godzilla versus Kong, where we will give a synopsis. Kong and his protectors undertake a perilous journey to find his true home. Along for the ride is Gia, an orphaned girl who has a unique and powerful bond with the mighty beast. However, they soon find themselves in the path of an enraged Godzilla, Godzilla, as he cuts a swath of destruction across the globe. The initial confrontation between the two titans, instigated by unseen forces, is only the beginning of the mystery that lies deep within the core of the planet. Unseen forces, meaning Mecha Godzilla, which was ruined by the director himself on Instagram because Hasbro were like, oh, by the way, the toys are on the shelves. And he was like, well, I've got to tell you, Mecha Godzilla's in it. And then straight away, with anyone with any storytelling capabilities in their mind, will go, well, that's what's it's going to be that Batman versus Superman thing. That's going to be the thing that's going to unite them at the yep. end of it. That's the thing that's going to bring them together. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, Mecha Godzilla's going to be like, and Godzilla and Kong are going to look at each other and they're going to go, is your mum called Martha? <laughs> that joke has been told far too many times, but not in a degrading way. I think it's interesting, the dichotomy between Kong and Godzilla, the nature that the humans are protecting Godzilla on Skull Island, which isn't really Skull Island, it's a Kong. centered... They're protecting Kong on Skull Not Island. Godzilla, <laughs> Kong on Skull Island, whereas Godzilla is just cruising about and he's come out of the woodwork or out of the depths. I still don't understand. Like, Skull Island was never protected prior to... Mm -hmm. Well, it was by the stormy stuff. You're telling me that Godzilla couldn't get through that? And that he wasn't aware of it. Exactly. It's messy. Exactly. It is Why have they suddenly gone from them not being bothered by each other being on the same planet in the slightest to all of a sudden they are the biggest enemies known to mankind? How because does that work? Because it goes from their genesis into the hollow earth, which isn't even really described to us, just in pathetic paintings there's no depth behind why there is a confrontation also what is stopping him from getting to that there island? was nothing stopping him because i know that there was the whole storm thing the whole you know you can't get through that area of the around the island because you know flying but you can't tell me it was the same underwater we're not even on skull island because it's just a a uh, what do you call it it's a um hologram it's a setup it's a it is it's a. Uh, but they're protecting him from Godzilla. Why? 
He's been fine for how many years of his life? I mean, up to this point, he, you will notice he's much bigger. So he was a teenager in the 70s. So now in 2000, they're saying 20, 23. Uh, he must... How well? Yeah, he's basically like 40. So he's managed 40 years without fighting with Godzilla. Yeah. And now all of a sudden we have to protect Kong. Like because... It could have been a clever narrative thing where humans just wanted an excuse to enclose him and study him. And that is their ethos, and that's their excuse, because humans will find any excuse to, like, meddle, but they don't. No. Godzilla, if he really had a problem with Kong, he would have turned up and be like, Way hey, before motherfuckers, yeah. also, whilst I'm here, I want to eat some of those skull-crawler shits. Exactly. He's king of his domain. And then when that bitch is like, Kong bows to no one. No, on his island he doesn't. Yeah. And the only reason he's engaging is because that little girl is basically being a manipulative little bitch... And signing everything everyone wants to do with him. That relationship established in the trailer was like, ah, oh, it builds on nothing. It is a hollow concept only leaned upon to verify or justify Kong defending us. Yeah. Like all that like sign, sign language shit. No, it don't fucking fly with me because we haven't seen that relationship. We're told the relationship in yeah. exposition. It's shoved down our fucking throat. The information that Godzilla is free-flowing our saviour of an all of a sudden because they decide to take Kong outside of this generated, hologrammed environment because they're protecting Kong, but take him out because they want to go to the Hollow Earth where Skarsgård, Alexander Skarsgård, is playing a scientist. <laughs> okay. You might as well take your shirt off and beat your chest again and be Tarzan. You might as well be in that Kong Island, Skull Island, and fucking beating your chest with him, mate. <laughs> and knocking together coconuts because... Ugh, the film is fucking awful. And I was all for it because I love Adam Wingard as a director. But what they gave him, a terrible script. They said, you can do anything you want visually. You can tell he's come in and infused it with that neon-drenched uh, aesthetic and style. Mm -hmm. And that frenzied, uh, <clears throat> almost jarring, oh my God, this is so wild and epic and... That, you know, has always been under the surface of his horror movies and his other films and features. And it's it's playing with the big toys, isn't it? Mm. Like, these indie filmmakers are going in and I think they're given so much to play with that they lose sight of telling a decent story. Yeah. Also, making a decent film. Mm -hmm. You've got all these devices and it's like, come up with an action sequence. Oh, oh, oh! And then you kind of forget about everything else that's been set up before. Even as there's loose strands, you kind of have to take them. The characters in this film don't need to exist. There's no state. Everything's demolished and destroyed, and we're kind of like, yeah, whatever, it's just going to be built up again. There's this talk of apex at this height, apex at this uh, apex, at this apex of technology. That's, again, over five years. It's this five-year mark thing. Mm -hmm. Like, within five years, we've advanced again. Yeah. Ugh. I like the notion that they designed Mechagodzilla, but... It's, ugh, I don't care. There's no stakes. They're just going to demolish everything. And then at the end go, don't worry, we'll technologi technologically advance again within five years. Going into the hollow earth was just pathetic. I understand he needed to charge his energy. Everything surrounding this film was rushed, unjustified and unearned. It was unearned. Couldn't have said it better Godzilla myself. has ten minutes on screen and they mistreat him. 
We have a bond with him, a kinship with him. We know he is inherently good. And then we have him snarling at Kong, like, bitchily, like, Yeah, I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> but, that's yeah. not, that's, but that's not warranted. No. None of it's warranted. None of it's explained well enough. And when it is, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, for me, Godzilla vs. Kong is one star. It is fucking awful. No matter bombacity, no matter how many fan pl- fan pleasing moments of seeing these titans on screen coming together. Also, what about all these other creatures that are still in existence, that of which were beholden to Godzilla? Where did they come in? All these creatures that were established in the last film. What's going on there? This is lazy filmmaking. They fill those gaps in in the credit sequences at the end of the film, you know, with all that flashed fast footage with the mm-hmm. highlighting, redacting yeah. everything. You can't do that with a story this large. Oh, we can't have covered it all in the end credit sequence. First of all, it was minor insulated moments in the first Godzilla just to give you a taste of there is a history. Then they did it not as a storytelling beat, but as homage for Kong Skull Island, Mm -hmm. as little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Then I heard in the commentary, they went, we really wanted to tell the rest of the story in the end credits. You can't do that. When each title is being blanked out, actual sustenance of story and backdrop and information is being redacted, and then, then you're being told that what is happening within the story, oh, is produced by this guy. We're not there to piece by piece pick it together. You need to usher that information onto us, narratively, even expositionally. Oh, we told the rest of the story in the end credits. No! And they do the same thing here, I bet. Mini Bobby Brown... Why are you in this? Please, make as many Enola Home films as you want. Also, the guy who plays her dad literally sniffs in this film, and that's it. Then Julian Dennison, who's a very talented New Zealand actor, bless his heart, he strives his hardest on screen with Tyree Henry, the black guy who's like a conspiracy theorist. So those are the only two characters you're interested in. Because they're funny. They're the only thing that keeps you engaged. What is it that keeps calling him? Water. Tap water. Yeah. Tap water. Other than that, Adam Wingard, man, please go back to making smaller films because big blockbusters don't suit you. I understand what you were going for, dude, and I like the neon audacity and the frenzied hyper kineticism and kitsch nature, kitsch nature, but it doesn't work. You need a good, strong script before you go and make a film like this. A lot of films like this on this scale, all of their storyboards are done well in advance and he came in very fucking early. So the studio weren't like, okay, these action sequences make a story around it. He was there in the early stages. So if a director was in the early stages of the storyboards and the action, which is obviously filmed by Adam Wingard, done relatively well, why didn't he have the nous or, you know, the tenacity within those three years making this film to say, hold on, we need to tie this up. We need to make a story out of this. But because he's been offered $250 million to do whatever he wants, go to whichever country he wants and blow up as much shit as possible so he can do funny videos on Instagram where he's sighing and a fucking explosion is going off behind him and he goes, what? <laughs> he's spending time having so much fun getting paid fuck tons of money to blow shit up. And to make big visual action sequences and fucking all that shit that he's ever wanted. But at the heart of it, he didn't make a good film. He didn't tell a good fucking story. It's disappointing. It really is. <sighs> right. How many stars would you give it? One. 
One. Should we move on? <sighs> Sweating. You have to stop shouting. <laughs> right, those who wish me dead. The synopsis is as follows. Still reeling from the loss of three lives, Hannah is a smoke jumper who's perched in a watchtower high above the Montana wilderness. She soon encounters Connor, a skittish boy who's bloodied, traumatised and on the run in the remote forest. As Hannah tries to bring him to safety, she's unaware of the real dangers to follow. Two relentless killers hunting Connor and a fiery blaze consuming everything in its path. Dun, dun, dun! Synopsis doesn't give it enough credit. There's so much else going on there. So much out, So much happens in the film. Mm, mm. I don't really think I, we should give it away because I want as many people to go see this film as possible because Taylor Sheridan is a great writer, great director. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, if you are in any way worried about the fact that this is Angelina Jolie, don't worry. She's great. She's fantastic. The story is heartwarming. It's tense. It's um, it's thrilling, and it's absolutely wonderful. And do you know what? The ending really did show that it's not all about the Hollywood ending, and that there are other things to be considered. And that's all I will say. Uh, absolutely fantastic in my eyes. Five stars. Quickest review ever. Would you agree with the star rating? Yeah, five stars, definitely. I really enjoyed it. Uh, Nicholas Holt in this. At first you think, oh my God, you are like a lanky, bug-eyed, sloth-looking motherfucker. You are not menacing. But then they played up to that sloth motherfucker, sleazy look, and you just can't wait till that guy gets his comeuppance. The action is thrilling, beautifully photographed. The CGI man for the uh, the fire scenes intense Jolie gives it her all she's always had a, a, a she's had a reputation for being all which means what pouty lips pouty lips and <clears throat> that being the be all end all to her career she has made some decent films in the past Girl Interrupted one of the Tomb Raider films but she has basically fallen foul to being just a pouty Hollywood name she's good in those um Oh gosh, those Sleeping Beauty films. <sighs> well, who is she called in the Disney films? I don't know, I haven't seen them. Yeah, but we should know their names. What is she called? <sighs> Mistress of Evil. Maleficent. That's it. Uh, she's good in them. She is a Hollywood star, but also she's a. She really brings her. Um, even though her character is someone of whom doesn't want children and she's out of her depth. And uncomfortable with it. You can really see her mother inside come through the character, the realism of dealing with kids. The young actor in this film, though, well, he needs to be recognised. I don't think this film's going to get Oscar noms, but in the world of articulate warbling, it really should. Um, it's an exceptional film. Taylor Sheridan, uh, when I saw that he was teaming up with Jolie and this trailer came out, I was kind of like, oh, he's... It's a, it's a one of those low, it's one of those low budget indie uh, writers and directors of whom have been given a big budget with a Hollywood name, and it's going to be you know an end result akin to Adam Wingard, where it's just all about the explosions and the the visual spectacle on screen, but actually it's a very intimate drama and everything that you want from a film. 
you're washed away with heartfelt sentiment, action, drama, actual stakes and emotions and an interesting narrative. Loads of great characters and it has so many beats where it just ticks, ticks, ticks. And in the end, you look at all these tick boxes and you just scrunch up the paper, eat it and go, perfection. Five <laughs> stars for those who wish me dead. Loved it. Now we're going to move on to the boringest film made in 2020. Nomadland. What? The synopsis is as follows, and it's as short as I wish when this film was. <laughs> a woman in her 60s who, after losing everything in the Great Recession, embarks on a journey through the American West, living as a van-dwelling modern-day nomad. Well That's done. all it needs. Well done. That's the best synopsis I've ever actually done in my entire life, because that is all the film needs. You don't even have to watch it. You don't. You do not have to watch that film to know that all you have to know from this film is that a woman in her 60s loses everything in the Great Recession and embarks on a so-called journey. This recession isn't even brought up in any way at all, though. Well, it is because of the whole she got kicked out of her previous yeah, job. Yeah, but it's not tackled. No. But my point is, is the fact that all you need to know about this film, and you don't have to watch it, all you have to know is an old lady lives in a van... As a modern day nomad. That's all you need to know. You don't need to watch anything. Is that your review? Yeah, that's my review. Go for it. So, I, I've got to agree. I am in total agreement. So, the reason that Chloe Zhao and Frances McDormand appealed for people to see Nomadland on the biggest screen possible wasn't because it is the most gorgeously photographed film ever. It just isn't. Or to really instil in the audience the isolation, beauty, the depths of vast sweeping landscapes and nature and their ever-changing locations and horizons throughout this film. This nomad jumping from location to location. It's just mind-numbingly dull. A two-hour runtime of nothing. It is because anyone in their right mind watching this on Disney Plus would switch off. That's why they're appealing for you to see it on the big screen. <laughs> Both literally and metaphorically. Because after the first 45 minutes, where, whereas, you know, you kind of decide, I'm out. But when you're in the cinema, you've paid to see this. And due to Covid, you're kind of welcoming the re-experience of going to the cinema. You won't walk out, as you don't want to lose money at the cinemas. But as a Cineworld Unlimited card holder... <laughs> I have the comfortability and opportunity of leaving halfway through a film, whereas many ticket buyers don't nor won't do that. But as me and Laura, you know, after coming out of lockdown and self-isolation and way before uh, anything... Uh, sorry, Laura just distracted me. She's dittering about. Um, I'm dittering about while she talks. So, anyway... We've come out of lockdown, the experience of going to the cinema over the three, four, five day period, we're seeing as much as we can because Laura had uh, a procedure, an operation on her spine. We might be talking about that at the end. She'll be talking about that at the end. So we were going to see everything that we could. And, you know, pre-operation, we have to lock down. After operation, 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 we have to lock down. It's just to ensure security and safety for Laura's health. And it was the last film we would be able to see until next Saturday. And guess what? I believe Laura was actually close to leaving. And I think I would have too. I really would. If we thought, if we, if we... <laughs> We'd have known what each other was thinking, we would have walked out. Yeah, because the film is a heap load of nothing. It is, if anything, the weakest Oscar winner in many, many years. 
Like many Oscars in years past, the films nominated, the actors and act- actresses, their nominations all cater into a trend, a current cultural mood, to make themselves stand out as being progressive. This makes the Academy look worse for doing as such due to the disingenuous nature of it all. This film isn't allegorical and life-affirming as so many have labelled it. It's self-indulgent, but the worst possible kind. It simmers in its own point and glumness, whilst adding nothing cinematically and visually to film history, that nor narratively. Now, Frances McDormand, as per usual, is given so much on screen, whilst everything around her... ain't much. There ain't much, really. There's little material. And, you know... <laughs> you've Not so much the cast. They can't seem to elevate beyond Chloe's script. And she is, you know, writer, director and editor. But with these actors involved, it doesn't save Frances McDormand and co. from still being in a weakly envisioned and relatively awfully made film. So no, I didn't enjoy this one, nor did Laura. A lot is wrong with it, and I have no time to write upon it or even talk about it any longer. I do not believe it had a chance at being something more special. I don't. Maybe if it lent more character development and actual narrative scope. No, I don't think it would, because the director would still fall upon nature, documentarian-styled, cinema verite shots. The film isn't beautiful enough either, ambiguous enough to visually warrant such high praise for its ambition and resonance, as there is little to appreciate cinematically in the look of the film and its tone. So, my initial rating was two stars. It's gone down to one. So, one star for Nomadland. One star from me and all. It's agreed. Right, next up, you'll be pleased to hear it's a bit more exciting. <gasps> what is it? The Mitchells versus the Machines. Oh you've now watched twice oh. uh, so synopsis is as follows young Katie Mitchell embarks on a road trip with her proud parents younger brother and beloved dog dog pig dog pig dog pig loaf of bread to start her first year at film school but their plans to bond as a family soon get interrupted when the world's electronic devices come to life st- to stage an uprising with help from two friendly robots, <coughs> the Mitchells must... Are they friendly, though? The Mitchells must now come together to save one another and the planet from the new technological revolution. Are you now my mother? <laughs> this film is hilarious. It is playful. It is heartfelt. It is gorgeously, sumptuously animated and envisioned. I wish Laura said this earlier to me, and I agree. I wish my life played out like this. It's also got this, like, modern generational mean aesthetic, like hyperkinetic, ridiculous humour that embodies, of course, one of the main characters, Katie, who is the filmmaker. Uh, this movie was initially called Connected and with a very mundane, boring, unappealing logo because Sony was like, no, kids won't watch Mitchells versus the Machines. It's too on the nose. Whereas Connected, mm, point proven, I don't know. Luckily, Amazon picked it up brought it and then they came to the director Mike who the family of the Mitchells are based upon and they said can we have the original title and Mike was like please thank god <laughs> so he basically was like 
I love how Sony Animation and Sony Studio gave us the budget and the freedom to make the film we wanted. But when it came to putting the film out, we had no control of the marketing. Because I believe we saw this trailer before the Broken Hearts Gallery, another top film from last year that I loved. And because it was a Sony feature, they were advertising Disconnected because they thought they could get people into cinemas with that film. Uh, Laura couldn't remember it. And I just kept getting confused as to, is Connected the same film? Did they remake it or is it just a change-up? So when the director was offered the chance to have the original title, he was like, yes, please. Oh, my God, thank you. And he doesn't, he didn't want to detract what, you know, Sony Animations offered him, his directorial debut, but it's the most, you know, genuine, heartfelt tribute to family, connectivity, the issues inherent with technology, but also the good it does creatively, artistically. The movie is a masterpiece. It really is. It's well written. First time I watched it, I came away a little bit... What's the word? Disappointed. But it took you three hours to watch it. Yeah, because anyone in my family with the surname of Ferguson can't seem to sit through a fucking film. Uh, but, you know, whatever. And I hate it when people say a kids' film because it detracts from what it actually offers. But it's a family film. For a family film, can you imagine them trying to watch like a masterpiece like Zodiac, which is a three-hour tour de force? That would take like fifteen hours, <laughs> and that's only for the first hour. Sometimes I question how I'm fucking related to these uncultured buffoons. But anyway. <laughs> What was the highlight of this film for you? You kind of were... You're not a fan of animated movies. So I was so shocked that you came away loving this as much as you did. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I'm not a huge fan. Um, I think the thing is, for me, it was funny in the right places and the humour was actually funny. It was relatable. It wasn't something that was just thrown in because um, they didn't have anything else to to say. It, it was it was put in because it is funny. Um, and the energy, it's so... It's so it's, it's so relatable. It's relatable and the energy, there's irrelevancy, it's a wackadoodle sense of humour. That type of humour that you have when you're just chilling out with your family members and you just come up with weird hypotheticals or weird... Like, a joke going on throughout this movie that I love is the, the dog, the pug... Uh, throws off all the that robots pig, because pig, they can't pig. they can't recognise whether he's a dog or a pig and end up, you know, crashing because they think he's a loaf of bread. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know, written on paper doesn't work. But when it's too animated and done so perfectly with the voice cast and the animation team, it's hilarious. It it's is, just hilarious. It and it is so irrelevant to the overall story, but it isn't. Also, there's a long-running theme about the father being more of a naturist rather than part of this technological realm. And he uh, gives each and every one a, uh, a specific screw... Uh, screwdriver in it but multi-purpose screwdriver yeah, yeah. and it was a joke but a joke that pays off in the finale where you go ah yeah it <laughs> has saves them it has so many influences sprinkled throughout from manga to comics to horror films to everything it's drenched in a pop cultural uh chamber pop but it's not stymied by overt uh, nostalgia it's just perfectly done and taking a furby and making them scarier than as per normal like Furby's as scary as it is oh you can do and then go and fill out there also little moments specific little tender 
hilarious, relatable moments in these big, bombastic sequences where we've got toasters, microwaves, all household essentials that are coming after them to Fridges fight them. Fridges. Them. And the mother of the Mitchells uh, gets picked up by a massaging chair and it's massaging her. And she's like, no, no, ooh, ooh, ooh. And then the daughter reaches out to get her and she goes, no. <laughs> Oh my god, little macro expressions and things like that is what makes it real, yeah. makes it hilarious. A lot of people have uh, said that the relatability and the energy of this film is quite akin to Edgar Wright films like Shaun of the Dead, and it has, it's that energy, it just doesn't cease, it's always going, there's always something there, there's an Easter egg. There's so much that you can unpick and rediscover, and up on the second viewing, it went from three stars to a huge Rainbow Street five-star film. I love it, it's probably my favourite film of this year, and it goes above, I know you're going to be shocked, ladies and gents, Justice League, the Snyder Cut. Does it? Yeah, I love this film. <laughs> I love it, I want to watch it again and again and again, also, that part, that moment, there's a streak of where Aaron, the little brother, uh, he gets himself so worked up in the presence of uh, girls that he runs away and just says the most inappropriate things. <laughs> and then when, at the end, in a stinger sequence, they show um, Katie, who's now at college and all happy and she's got a girlfriend and everything's going the way it should be, and they're like, look, who's Aaron's with? He's like, what? No, no! And all of a sudden, he just up shop and throws himself out of a window. That slapstick comedy is so perfectly timed. And he pops back up and goes, sorry, fast off habit. It's brilliant. <laughs> also, the robots that are glitched and now are taken on as their own family. <laughs> there's a bit where they're like, look, tell us where the robots are. Oh, we found them. Yay. <laughs> it's hilarious. The writing. Also, the people of whom do these voices are the creators behind it who have spent so many years with these characters, developing them, writing them, directing them. Uh, I recommend you listen to the podcast Spoiler Special with Chris Hewitt on Empire Podcast, where they talk to the director of this film. How much material they've got like, there's even a little jokey uh, hashtag, like, release the um, <laughs> release the miniseries cut of um, uh, Mitchells versus the Machines, because there's so many gags that they storyboarded and recorded. And he said that we literally have, like, a six-hour version of this film. And the gags <laughs> he was talking about were amazing. And he said we could have released it as a miniseries, but he said we're hoping to hold off and potentially use this for future projects outside of this. I think Sony... Um, animations have the balls, the temerity, the audacity and the, 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 the passion enough to make films that are visually individualistic. They are the sum total of the team behind it. It does not look like anything else out there and I think that is the freedom of expression afforded by Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, that unique visual palette. Like, I think Sony are allowing individualistic teams and creative teams to make these films specific and not be generic and blueprint and look like the same thing and not sequels or follow-ups. And they're giving people the room to breathe and express. And these films are made relatively cheap. If you want a real good time at the quote-unquote cinema or something to just switch off to on Netflix, watch... The Mitchells versus the Machines, you will not be disappointed. There's so much in it for anyone and everyone. And I think, you know, saying it's a kid's film, this film is wasted on children. If I like it, anyone will like it. So, five stars from me. How many from you? Five. What? You said four yesterday. Did I? Yeah. Oh, wow. Four.
five, four, five, loaf of bread. Okay, next up, there's another wood one. Wood one? Good one. Underwater. And the synopsis is very, 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 very short, which is a bit disappointing. <coughs> but it is as follows, nonetheless. Nora and her team find themselves in a dangerous situation as they work at the bottom of the Mariana Trench and clash against an unidentified species. Ooh. Kristen Stewart star and film. This was good, and I don't really like Kristen Stewart. Outside of Twilight. Outside of Twilight. She's annoying. She's just Miserable. Stewart. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, that the, the only downsides of this film is the fact that it's... It's the same thing, isn't it? It's a survival film because ultimately you're going to run out of oxygen somehow. <laughs> you're either going to drown in uh, a completely unoxygenated place such as space or you're actually going to drown in water, underwater. Although there was no drowning in this film, <laughs> there was spontaneous combustion. Awesome stuff though, wasn't it? It was very, very, very good. I mean... I really dug it. It has some extremely effective jump scares and also took class tension building, considering I don't like the notion of being trapped underwater, nor does Laura. Mm -hmm. And also an actual acceptable performance from Stuart with some gnarly sea creature designs based upon Lovecraftian myths and monsters. And it was amazing for me personally to see the deep ones and a vaguely discernible Cthulhu fully and finally envisioned in a big box Hollywood flick. It was effective, it was scary, it was tense, it was, again, it ticked so many boxes, and for me, I have to give Underwater four stars. I would agree. What next? What next? Oh, we've gone into a bit of a <laughs> territory. Downhill. Oh, God. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> what? Barely escaping an avalanche during a family ski vacation in the Alps, a married couple is thrown into disarray as they are forced to reevaluate their lives and how they feel about each other. This is yet another film that you just need to read the synopsis to understand what happened and not bother watching the film. And if you'd much prefer a funnier, darker, more drama-based, more relatable, uh, frisson, uh, tense experience, watch the original Force Majeure Zero stars for downhill. Will Ferrell gives it his all. He's actually quite a strengthening on-screen presence when he's being serious and comedic. But in this, he struggled against a awfully contrived script. They basically took all the heightened elements that made Force Majeure good and just gentrified it and made it boring. <laughs> Or maybe it's because they're not I mean, strong enough actors. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't like um, Will Ferrell at all. I really don't. And actually, of all the films I've seen him in, this is probably one of his better performances. Um, really? Yeah, but... I just... Stranger Than Fiction? With Emma Thompson? That's in it. Um, yeah, so this is probably his better performance as far as I'm concerned, but still a shit film. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say there's not really much else to it it was boring I wanted it to end um, I should have just read the synopsis fair enough fair enough so no stars for downhill no stars just don't indeed. remake foreign films like they're remaking Parasite already what English yeah or American 
Well, English language, yeah. No, I mean, like, are they doing it UK or are they doing it... No, it's American, American, of course. Okay. It's English language. Next up, uh, I think we have contrasting opinions of this one. Yes, I need to get up my review just to familiarise myself with my thoughts. I will uh, get the synopsis out and done with then. Uh, So this is Swallow, a young housewife with a seemingly perfect marriage and life develops a disorder that gives her an irresistible urge to eat inedible objects. Um, now, we have very, very conflicting views, I believe, so I'm just going to tell you how I feel first, because Zach can take it away after that. Uh, I felt that Take this... it away, Ernie! It's going to be a swallow with right? Gulp, gulp. That was great. No, it wasn't. Sorry. <laughs> it really I wasn't. I apologise. Um... I knew you were going to be like, this is so good, this is so good. And it's like, it just put me off even before I could think about whether it was humorous or not. Um, Look, I found this film extremely boring. I didn't feel like the storyline really had anything to it. Um, I get the idea, but we didn't see enough of what she was... We saw what she was clearly swallowing because (coughs) of the fact that she had a collection of the things that she'd swallowed. But I had no... There was only, like, one thing that I kind of winced at. I I felt that I wanted more tension about how it's going to affect her, how it's going to affect her body, and actually um, watching her try and swallow these things would have been far more entertaining, I think, if we'd actually seen her swallow them. Um, I just I just found it boring when we're talking... When we're looking at the end and it's all like, you know, is she going to get away from the horrible man that's clearly causing her to feel this way? I didn't feel any tension whatsoever. I just, I don't know. I don't know. I thought maybe on the day I was in a bad mood, maybe that's why, but still looking back at it, I'm like, no, sorry. I found it really boring. So, over to you. Hayley Bennett, of whom plays the lead character in this, was robbed of all notoriety for such a brave and sublime performance. It is very layered, haunting, extremely tragic, tragic but also empowering come that final confrontation between her and her father, of whom raped her mother. Carla, Carlo Mirabella Davies, director, Caitlin Arismendi, cinematographer, and Erin Magill, production designer, together craft and paint an extremely claustrophobic environment. And with this claustrophobic environment, there is a conveyance (coughs) of a controlled existence. By the lighting, art direction, and the way the camera does and doesn't move, the use of the exterior of the glass house and its exposure to the exterior environment. A freedom that is both enticing and mocking for the isolated and entrapped hunter that Hayley Pennett plays. I feel the film is tense and treats Hunter's behaviour and diagnostic and diagnosis brilliantly, especially for the tenor of the overall film's aesthetic and tonal and narrative choices and its overall design is essential to Hunter's emotional arc, is appropriately suited to the overall filmic structure. Critics have stated there's an insensitivity of the subject matter, because this is actually a thing, apparently, a condition that a lot of pregnant women suffer from as well. So, you know, they have claimed that it's been mistreated, this reality, And I understand that, but I must disagree. It uses the composure, the obsession, the mental health effect and effect, affect effect as an allegory and issue perfectly to fit the film's DNA. 
The environments perfectly match the mind frame of Hunter, of whom developed an impulse to consume such inedible objects. The film is almost a psychological drama, but in many ways an existential anti-body horror, whilst being a wholehearted body horror, where the metamorphosis and the act, the process, the ingestion, isn't repulsive for her, maybe for us as viewers, and this is as much due to the reality of the ingestion. It's about exposure more than anything else than ingestion as well. It's not about body horror for thrill, screams and the Cronenbergian prosthesis and effects. It symbolises something specific and yet unattainable for her and us, of whom are witnessing this blooming kind of insanity. Or is it blooming insanity? For Hunter, it is about control ownership, freedom of choice and relief. Relief of letting go of these burdens made physical, made felt real by her eating household objects. The relief that is solely mental and framed by the world she has been married into, submerged into. I love this film. It is a sublime film and I recommend people of whom like to pick apart uh, cinematic, cinematic styles, visual cinema that tells the story rather than expositionally and rather narratively. A lot of the film is built and crafted and filmed and elevated and forced by the filmic parameters. It is a very artsy film, and I can understand that people will find it boring, but if you approach it as the type of cinema it is, I, 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 and you're into this type of cinema, uh, I recommend you seek it out. Swallow is a four-star film for me. I loved it. I can't wait to see what the director does with this sensational creative team. It is a piece of art. I loved it. <clears throat> Fabulous. Uh, so, last up is Promising, <laughs> Promising Young Woman. And the synopsis is as follows. <clears throat> Nothing in Cassie's life is what it appears to be. She's wickedly smart, tantalisingly cunning, and she's living a secret double life by night. Now an unexpected encounter is about to give Cassie a chance to right the wrongs from the past. Now, they use two words in that synopsis. Wickedly and tantalisingly. There's nothing wicked about this film at all. And there's nothing tantalising. The trailer completely misleads you. And I know that was a deliberate ploy on the behalf of the filmmakers. But it's kind of shoddy considering we're going in there anticipating a kind of Quentin Tarantino styled carnage revenge flick when it's actually a damp squib. It's it's nothing. That's like the fifth time you've said damp squib in this entire podcast. The I'm fifth proud of you. only fifth. I'm proud of you. Oh, fuck. Better than my usual fifty. Um, it's better than me saying sloppy hamburger, which I used to say a lot. Not with us, but generally. I used I'm to... glad you don't say that anymore. That kind of makes me feel weird. Because I like hamburgers, but the sloppiness of it just makes it feel a bit weird. Anyway, um, yeah, look, this was shite. <laughs> uh, we're expecting Kerry Mulligan to be this kind of epic almost feminist woman that goes out and fucks men over. Um, the trailer makes it look like she goes around killing everybody. And yet we don't see any of this killing that she does. Sorry. That she doesn't Microphone do. just went flying. Um, <clears throat> and it's just really, really gutting because I want to see the men face their... 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 their shitty behaviour. I want them to, to see 
what happens when you're an asshole, basically, and we don't see you that. You want them to suffer. You yeah. want them to get their comeuppance. And I want to see them suffer, and I don't. Well, of which I used to think come up muffins. And I was like, what's come up muffins? Like, is that some, like, ultra-vegan? But then someone was like, comeuppance. I'm like, oh, no come up muffins. No. Mm, muffins. No come up muffins. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the idea was probably a good one, but the execution was lame. Yes. Um, and... I swear it smells like Frankfurt. Sorry. Yeah, it was just, it was just boring. And even after all of that, she still died. That's, I I, I just, I don't have a lot to say, really. It was just shite. It's extremely disappointing. It is treating its source material so lightly. There's no audacity. There's no real vim or venom. I think the source material deserves a little bit of a strengthening, if not more gory, ultra-violent, ultra-fetishistic, almost glamorization of revenge. I think the perfect embodiment of a film that Promising Young Woman wishes to convey is a movie mm. called Revenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So go out and watch that instead of Promising Young Woman. Uh, waited so long for it. So, so long, so excited for it. Was even so close to getting it for 30 quid on American Blu-ray. I'm so glad I didn't. Instead, we watched it off of... What was it again? Now TV? Yeah. yeah. The package? Mm. Uh, it was cinema one. Yeah, I, I don't like it. Uh, it left me cold for all the wrong reasons. Uh, I think visually and in spots, it's interesting. Yeah. I think it had quite a satisfying ending that was so close to having me write the film off completely as a one star mess and the thing is it's not even a mess editorially it's just a mess in the sense of how it makes you feel there's not much going for it Mm. there's no consequences until the right at the end, mm-hmm. which elevates it from a one-star film to a two-star film. I think the acting is sensational. I think some elements work, but the more extreme variants were obviously simmering and they wanted to come out at some level, but the director is not established enough or confident enough to do it. And considering that the director is as posh as royalty themselves, you kind of get a sense of her as a creator that she's not as... Uh, savvy as to the current trend and the current scope of what making film does, especially for female filmmakers. I think she comes from very uh, period, low low stakes, big drama in human relation type thing. She comes from soap opera territory in a lot of ways. She was Mm. an actress in Call the Midwife, which is... A drama, but also kind of soap opery. It's kind of all, even the harshest of materials like uh, stillborns, child death. The material within called the midwife, and all the material she's been associated with as an actress has always been BBC light. Yeah. Even her contributions to Killing Eve, I feel, is still hampered by that censorship, and I feel that she's got a unconscious. Uh, 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 censorship going on with her as a creator. I think there was something sizzling at the at, below the surface in this film. I believe that there was a audacity and a wish for it to carry across something a little bit more 
potent, a little bit more venomous, uh, as promised in the trailers. Uh, instead, she didn't have the balls to carry that off. Um, as a first-time director, I think she does very well. She's very capable. But as a script writer, there are flaws inherent with the treatment. I think they should have passed this script over to someone else a little bit more versed in cinema. Or if anyone else dealt with her script, maybe. Mm. But she won an Oscar for it. I don't believe she deserved to win an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay because it doesn't live up to any form of hype that of which surrounds it. You can feel it sizzling beneath the surface, but you can tell that she has self-censored her, not the studio, herself, due to her, on quotation marks, privileged position and where she comes from uh, entertainment-wise. I think that also expectations going in are too high because that trailer is riveting as a piece of art itself. Yeah, yeah. Outside of that, it's weak. It's it's kind of knock-kneed, mm. isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of scared to be what it needs, needs to, to be. be yeah. So I give it two stars. I'm going to give it one. Okay. Um, finally, I'm just going to have a little chat about my little procedure I had yesterday because... That is the end of the film reviews. Uh, and the only reason why I'm going to tell you is because I know that every single bloody podcast I moan about my back and I'm really proud of myself that I've not moaned once about my back in this podcast or well, we the one before. You, we heard a conveyance of you struggling in the sore spectacular where you're like, ah, ah, but warranted. I didn't say a word. You didn't. <clears throat> um. So we are currently in self-isolation for the next six days. Uh, because yesterday I had a caudal epidural, which consists of needles going into... Actually, it's just the one needle uh, going into what I thought was going to be my spine. And it does go into your spine, but it actually goes uh, into a, a, a small sac, which is right at the bottom of your spine. And where they have to put the needle in is right above your bottom hole. I just didn't like this. I really didn't like the case that he was like, please put some hot wax on your bum, because as I lean down... You're going to strip my moustache straight off my face. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was the most painful thing I think I have ever experienced. Uh, and those of whom are sitting at home with me are so sick of me saying that now. Um, but it was genuinely the most traumatic and painful experience I think I've ever had. It felt like there was an elephant standing on one leg on my spine. It's very, very, very uncomfortable. And it hasn't made a blind bit of fucking difference. As of yet. As of yet. Uh, it's supposed to be... Um, the anaesthetic that goes in is supposed to be pain relieving. That's supposed to last for about 30 minutes to an hour. I didn't receive any of that pain relief. Uh, um, and then it could take up to a week to work. But at the moment I'm going through the stages of the pain being worse than it was before I'd bloody well started. So, cut a long story short, that didn't go very well. So uh, you'll still be hearing a lot more of the bitching and moaning about my back pain going forward in Articulate Warbling podcasts. I would like to also end the podcast with what are the films you are most looking forward to seeing on the big screen coming uh, this year and this year. coming out of also lockdown. A Quiet Place 2. Cruella. Which is interesting because initially you really did not engage with that trailer I when I really first showed it. really just must have been having a bad day. I yeah. don't remember being in a particularly you bad mood. You literally screamed at me. 
for Emma Stone. Margot Robbie should have been Cruella. I was like, holy fucking shit, what? And she's like, she looks awful. I ain't seeing that shit. And I was like, oh. I think Margot Robbie would make a good Cruella, but I think Emma Stone was well cast there. Um. Anyway, yes, so A Quiet Place 2, Cruella, Fast and Furious 9. Yeah. Um. <laughs> and... What else is coming out this year, please? A fuck ton. A fuck ton. I'm looking forward to a quiet place, of course. Cruella, I want to make very apparent. Watch Cruella trailer, the latest one, the latest released one. And then watch Joker trailer. And tell me that they're not going for the same tone and the same cut. Even the cut of the trailer is similar. Maybe the film isn't. But Supernova. Supernova is one as well. Um, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about it, but I'm quite looking forward to seeing Dream Horse. Mm-hmm. Um, Nobody. Nobody. I really can't wait. Yeah. Uh, the Raya and the Last Dragon, was that the little cute hedgehoggy thing? Yeah. I'm, that thing I'm... grows huge. We won't be able to see that because by the time they finish from the cinemas, they are making it all exclusive on Disney+. Plus. So we're going to miss that. Oh. Because it's showing now. Oh. Well, anyway, never uh, mind. Also, surprisingly... I'm... Yeah. Oh, it is the... No, it isn't. Not on the poster. But it is the Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Yeah, on the website, but not on the poster mm. or on the actual film. Uh, anyway, yeah, so I'm quite <coughs> looking forward to seeing that, I think. I don't know whether I'm going to like it or not. <coughs> um... The Father, I want to see purely because I want to see why the fuck Anthony Hopkins has been given another Oscar. Jungle Cruise looks fucking brilliant. It's like a mixture of The Mummy and Pirates of the Caribbean. Suicide Squad, I'm not looking forward to at all. Um, I really want to see another round. Uh, it's got Mads Mikkelsen, Black Widow, Black of Widow, course. Yeah. You want to see Candyman? I really want to see Candyman. Look, the advertising connected, but oh. it's already out. Okay, Death, Death on the, on the Nile. Nile. I'm surprised that they haven't pulled that due to the controversy surrounding... Uh, Apparently, Arnie Hammer's taste for human flesh. That's about it at the moment. I want to see No Time to Die, just so. Oh, Snake Eyes with Henry Golden. Oh, yes. Hello, I hello. About that. <clears throat> um... Boss Baby 2 looks hilarious. The Kingsman looks good. The Kingsman. No, we're not seeing the witches. Venom, let there be carnage, I can't wait for. So we've got a few good things to watch. So, as always, I'm Zach. I'm Laura. And you have been articulately warbled at. Yep. Yeah, that's a good place to sign off. Look after yourselves and each other. And if you know people of whom are in lockdown and self-isolated, stop fucking boasting about your lifestyle going out. Just makes you like a massive cunt. Thank you for that note, Zach. Thank you. I am not in lockdown. I, 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 I've, I, I, you know, food service worker in the states. I got the vaccine a long time ago. Still wearing a mask. Still just keeping distance from people. And also, yeah, no. I honestly, I, I'm having a hard time leaving since lockdown's been lifted. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not that excited to go out into the outside world. I hope you are, though. And if you're not, hey, we're going to make more podcasts. PGTTCM.com is where this is produced. Go to Sweat Drenched Writer. Uh, it's in the show notes. It's in the show notes.
Zach and Laura, thank you again so much. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. This has been Articulate Warbling with Zach and Laura. I've been your producer, D.B. Spitzer. Good night and good morrow. Or some shit like that. I don't know. I can't say the C word because I'm American. <laughs>